Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you once again to Poets of the East Season 2, and I am so pleased that right alongside me, my wonderful, creative, poetic friend, my brother, Misha Danduda. Misha, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm honored, I'm happy, and I'm humbled to be here again within the second season of the Poets of the East. Thank you very much, Rick Spisak. Thank you very much for your energy. Thank you very much for your love to poetry. And thank you very much that you made everything this second season. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to have us main producer of this wonderful series, a great poet and a great cultural manager, Rick Spisak. Thank you, Rick. My brother, I, I'm, I'm only going to ask you to promise one thing for season two. From now on, after today, I'm going to want you to bring at least one of your own fantastic poems to every one of our shows. Is that is that a fair deal? I cannot say no. I am uh-huh. overwhelmed. Thank you very much. It is really a great honor. And if this is a promise, Yes, I will. I swear I do. Okay. Okay. That's all I ask of you today, my brother. Thanks a lot. We have two more just amazing, heart-tugging, powerful poets to bring to you today. Besides, besides my brother, Misha Danduta. Besides. And besides Rick Spitak, which Ah, is ah, always ah. the best. I don't know uh, you you're know very him. kind. I mean, if you, if you don't, I introduce him. He's very poetic, you know. You may not know him, but I, I know him really. Well, you're very kind, my brother. Very kind. I, okay. I'm just joking. Okay. You wanna, you wanna say a word or two about uh, Leslie, who's gonna be our first one up? I'll be honored. I mean, I know uh, Leslie Constable. I have known Leslie Constable. For a couple of years, uh, and uh, I have always been impressed with its ability to Brother, you're breaking up quite a bit. Let's let's hope that um, let's hope that uh, as time passes in the show that your connection will improve. Right now, it's it's breaking up pretty severe. So let me go ahead and bring on part one of uh, our dear Leslie Constable, an extraordinary poet, painter, 
journalist, writer extraordinaire, and uh, I have to say a being of some awesome spiritual consequence as well. So here we go with part one, Leslie Constable. Let's hear it from her. Hello. Hello, can you see me? I can see your lovely smiling face. I'm a lucky man for it. <laughs> Thank you. How are you, my dear? Oh, I'm I'm great. I'm just having a fabulous day so far. How about you? Very good, very good. Although the day is yet young, I have <laughs> challenges and exciting projects ahead of me, not the least of which is your lovely self. And <laughs> I've been studying a little bit from the wonderful information you sent me, and I am so pleased to know you even just a little bit, and I look forward to knowing you a little bit more. Wonderful. Thank you. So I'm starting my recording process now. Okay. And in uh, in just about a minute, I'll be able to say, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Leslie Constable. Uh, an artist, a poet, uh, a writer, a critic, an educator, uh, and, and most of all, a wonderful creative person outside all the boxes. And, and when I read in her bio that she's, she feels inspired by the concept of a magical realism, that's, that's one of the best boxes you could have, I suspect. And uh, being a person myself who's been graced with insights, with visions, with inspiration outside the, the human rational box, I have to say, my gosh, I'm welcome to meet you. <laughs> so you've been an artist since you were young. Talk about your early art. What were some of the things that motivated you? What, were, what inspired you? <clears throat> Talk a little bit about the, the early, the young Leslie. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, I have a rather um, mythic structure to my life. Um, I bet. In, in, a, in, in a itself. Um, yeah, and, and I'm really more about what I do and what interests me rather than my identity and all that. I'm, I'm more curious about life and others than myself. But <laughs> sure, sure. So it's, it's, it's fine to begin with some of that. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a dual citizen. Uh, my father, American, my mother, English. Uh, they met during the war. Wonderful romantic story. He was injured um, in my mother's hometown uh, regarding training ops to be, you know, to go over to uh, the European theater, it was, as it was called. And they put him in a bed to recuperate next to my mother's uh, British Army cousin. <laughs> so oh, that, uh, how fortuitous. <laughs> yeah, it's such, it's such a charming story. And so there were a lot of transatlantic crossings vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, ships that were involved. And uh, they got engaged by mail, and they were married in, in Bristol. How nice. How nice. And then, yeah, I was I was on the way, and my father, who um, was um, a journalist, ah. um, couldn't get work in Britain after the war. And so he 
got a job sight unseen at a newspaper in, in Ohio where he stayed for 40 years. So that involved um, another voyage um, six weeks before my birth. So I oh did a transatlantic voyage. <laughs> they, let, they let pregnant women on ships back then that far along. So that was sort of my beginning. So, yeah, a lot of fun. But I, I just have a lot of that sort of stuff going on. Um, the other very odd thing about my beginnings is that I started life as a fraternal twin. And it's very rare when it ha- that it happens, but it does. I've been told medically that my mother miscarried my twin brother. Wow. And didn't know she was still expecting and um so um yeah surprise baby huh i yeah 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 so um anyhow they they kept the the secret they they kept it a secret they kept it hidden from me until i turned 18 it was like and then my father said oh we better tell her now and i tell me what (laughs) (laughs) they said you were a twin and i went i know which i did because i had this imaginary twin friend named Timothy who used to get who used to apparently float up and get stuck on the ceiling and there was my very pragmatic English mother with a little step ladder trying to say is he here is he ah, here ah, ah. Oh, <laughs> so my my British family they're all you know West Country um, sort of fairy folk types and so it's like oh it's the fairy folk you know all that and uh, so the 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 other funny little aspect to me is that and my father was um, he was a jazz musician he was really oh, wow. hip he was a poet he was a he was um, a painter himself um, a Shakespearean scholar blah 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 but he really loved Picasso um, which some people don't. I happen to. And so uh, right before uh, my birth, they placed, uh, they had Picasso prints all over the apartment. And so um, they placed one to the side of my crib. And, my goodness. And so I recall, I recall, I like Picasso was my fairy godfather. Because Talk I, about imprinting. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I would, I, I would stare at, and I, you know, I don't remember those early months, you sure, know, that early time, but then as, as a toddler and then a child, um, I would, you know, we had them all over the, the, the apartment, so I would stare at them and interpret them and <laughs> that sort of thing. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. I didn't have a chance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> No Frederick Remington here. <laughs> no, so, yeah, and I still go to the, whenever I'm in Barcelona, I go to the Picasso Museum there and stand in front of, um, he did a, one day after another of, of homage to Velasquez's uh, Las Meninas or the, the, you know, the La Infanta, um, that wonderful painting. And uh, so he did, um, huge, like almost room-sized paintings day after day, of, of sort of breaking down um, that painting. Um, and I stand whenever I, I 
I visit there and I stand in front of it, I, I, I start crying. It just, well, you know how that happens. It just is very Absolutely. And so at one point I went again and the guard says to me, oh, and it's, I speak good Spanish. She says, oh, you were the one who cried. <laughs> <laughs> and I took that as such a sincere compliment. Absolutely. And so he gave me space and, you know, and of course I started crying again, but. Picasso to me is is like I said my my fairy godfather. So um. well, if if you'll uh, if you'll permit me, one of my artistic early momentous ones was uh, I was so fortunate as a young child. The elementary school that I went to, the principal was so inspired by music, she made sure that every first or second grader got a chance to attend the, the great Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra in the most beautiful hall, uh, a late uh, 19th century building, so beautifully done. And when I went, here I am in first grade, uh, I, I was so completely transported it was a Tchaikovsky show, and I just started weeping. It was so breathtakingly, achingly beautiful mm. that I just started crying. I was so touched. Mm. And the principal came over to me, dear woman, just, just the dearest woman. She said, Ricky, what's wrong? And I said, it's so beautiful. I can remember it to this day. She said, yeah, but what's wrong? And I said, it's so nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what? That dear woman let me go with every class that went the entire six years that I attended that school. I got to go with every group that went because she knew that this meant something very, very special. Oh, bless her. She understood. Oh, how wonderful. What a launch. What what a launch. So I got a chance to play. Uh, I began trumpet two years ahead of my peers because I just, I just had to play trumpet. I was so I was touched by these two films, the the biopic of George Gershwin Life, which is I have, I gather now much <laughs> irrelevant to what his really experience was, but the Gershwin biopic and then the Vic Spiderbeck biopic called A Man with a Horn. So I started playing trumpet early. But enough about me. My dear Leslie, so you, you've been both a graphics person, it seems to me, as well as a, a, a writing person. So when did you really begin to know that you really didn't have a choice? You were a writer and a teacher, um, I might add. Well, um, my, my, my mother had to get a lot of advice from all the West Country folk in terms of how to manage me. And, uh, yeah, they they just said, well, she's just one of those. The fairies were present at her birth. <laughs> they handed handed out a lot of stuff to her. So and she was always on the phone because she was she just didn't or you know on the phone or the writing letters ah, ah. she just didn't get it. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, um, one of them was like stick crayons in her hand. Excellent, <laughs> her, excellent. Give her something to do. And I lived across from, uh, grew up across from this remarkable estate called Black's Woods in Mansfield, Ohio. And Mrs. Black, a very wealthy woman, um, 
gave me free free run or free reign over her woods and I built little sports under the juniper trees and and she had a stable you know and so I got to see the 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 foals when they were born and blah 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 so I had a lot of help and also there were a lot of elderly neighbors around us and Mansfield Ohio was like a settlement center probably like Pittsburgh or a lot of the um you know the industrial areas you know in the United States but it was a settlement center set center after World War II. So my whole graduating class, we were like citizens of the world. I mean, they were either uh, born somewhere else, moved when they were tiny, or they, they were, you know, just their families had come over and they were born in the United States. I was just one of of of, of many of uh, first generation or whatever on, on, on one side. And so it was just a, a real, you know, amazing environment to grow up in. And all the elderly neighbors around um, uh, my house were spoke other languages. I guess uh, I spoke German, so that Mrs. Hunsinger would give me cherry strudel. <laughs> and I was the little kid who got, went and visited all the elderly neighbors, and I had very good manners, and I loved to listen to their stories, and um, I loved their company. So that was another thing that, you know, I was sort of given to do and my, just my curiosity about how, the, how other people were. And then going and visiting my friends, um, you know, with their houses, um, in many cases that the parents didn't speak good English at all, you know. And so that the, my friend, my, my, you know, the kid was the interpreter. And so I got to see all the artwork on their walls and, you know, taste and smell their cooking and taste it. And it was, it was all different. And so I think that amplified everything too. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I don't know where I'm going with this, but, um, it's okay. Yeah. It's just... It was a lovely voyage. By the way, yeah. I lived in Massillon, Ohio in 52, no, it's a year, 53, 53, 54. Maslin. Oh, I absolutely know where that is. (laughs) Totally. Excellent. So, So, yeah, moving on. um, Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I, and my dad was a writer. He was a poet himself. He had an amazing library. We talked in my family. We talked about art. My mother was a good dancer. Um, I ended up also as a modern dancer at one point. And so um, I went to symphony. Uh, now, may I ask? Ballet. Hmm? Merce Cunningham, Isidore Duncan. Uh, who's, who's, uh, who's dance captured you? Who'd well, you? oh, thanks for saying Merce Cunningham. I actually, uh, when I was cutting my teeth as an arts writer, I did a lot of dance reviews, and I had the honor, privilege of seeing Merce Cunningham perform with John Cage as pal. Oh, 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 and I wrote about it, so I have the review somewhere. Oh, I, that's wonderful! That must have been well. I'm sure it's quite memorable. Right, but then I was an Ohio State girl, and I ended up teaching there, and you know, being an art cur- curator there. Blah 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 blah. But wow, what! Amazing, you know. I saw Twyla Tharp. Um, I saw Alvin Ailey, Paul Taylor, all the greats of dance. And oh, as a wonderful! And a writer, I was able to write because my body knew what was going on. 
Um, I was able to write about dance in a very, very simple way uh, so that, you know, in non-technical terms, so sure, that sure, sure. The, the reader could pretty much follow along. But, and then, you know, all the, you know, the political <laughs> and uh uh, Luis Borges and um, just just oh I can't even remember all of them. I interviewed Madeleine Langle, uh, the writer who um, yeah if you if you recall her Mrs. What's It and Who's It and I forget oh A Wrinkle in Time I, I interviewed her um, I interviewed Yoko Ono I have a tape really? of yeah I did what was your what was your first impression of Yoko Ono sure how amazingly gracious she is as a being. Um, you know, a lot of people had had just tremendous trouble finding appreciation in her vocalizations, in her, in her musical work. I, I never had that problem. Because no, my, case, my case run from avant-garde through the classics mm-hmm. and beyond. I, I was a very, very late comer to rock and roll. I, I didn't really begin to appreciate it until probably the late, uh, well, at least the late 60s, early 70s. I was yes. I was a jazz and classical artist. I had no use for pop music whatsoever. And, yeah, I get it. Until I heard Jim Morrison and Frank Zappa, I went, mm-hmm. okay, maybe there's something there that, that can speak to me. But I, I so totally appreciate it. And I remember sitting at parties in the late 60s, early 70s, when the double side came on, there was John and there was the Yoko side, and my yep. friends were just holding their ears and yelling. I said, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Yes, it's not melodic, but that's okay. Can you, you know, give yourself a minute to listen?" I, I always, I like her work. I like her work tremendously. Now, I, I love John's work, especially the political stuff. I, I had no use for their '60s early stuff that. Yeah. Want to hold your hand crap, but yeah, but, or love me do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, All not that my mountain. cup of tea. Yeah. Um, but the political stuff, absolutely. Right. So, let's talk for just a moment or two about what it was like, young artist by by national, as we walk through the Vietnam War years. Oh, Very okay. interesting time for artists. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I had a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Nice answer. And if you want to leave it in that, I understand, because it was a complicated time. No, I had I had oodles of fun, and I saw Hendrix and Cream and and the Animals, and I saw the Beatles. August fourteenth, nineteen sixty-six. I did. No kidding. Um, And I saw Airplane, and later Starship. I right, got my right. job. I got my job as an arts writer after I graduated uh, from J school, um, journalism school. Sure, sure. I got my job because of Paul Kantner. No kidding. Starship. I'll tell you the story real quick. It's like yeah, no rush. So no the rush. editor, the editor is like, uh, all right, well, let's see if you got what it takes. You know, <laughs> I love oh, oh. my dad was a journalist. I love oh. those guys. It's like. Get how, how about them bait, you know? You know, or the, uh, you put the story to bed yet, like, uh, you know, get so-and-so on the horn. You know, those those just gravelly voices, just hilarious. I loved all of them, curmudgeons, all of them. But right. so he said, 
I'll tell you what. He says, I've got two tickets to the Starship concert. He says, here they are. Go cover it. Uh, here's a pass to get into the, to, you know, the dispatch, you know, up on the sixth floor, there'll be computers, you know, file your copy. And if you do a good job, you got the job. So All I right. Like, All right. Had my two tickets to ride, show up at the, the concert, right? And um, sit, got some good seats there. Well, I took a friend with me. And so, um, you know, back in the day, the uh, the angels, the Hell's Angels, used to police the concerts. You know yeah. they were in the first two, three rows. So, wow. uh, you know, I've got, you know, my when I saw Airplane in, in uh, 68, um, obstreperous person that I am, I... <laughs> I toddled up all by my lonesome and and placed my elbows on the stage. I was taking pictures, and I felt this tap on my shoulder. I look around. There's this big – I love the Hells Angels. They were looking out for me and my, my, my girlfriends all the time to make sure that, you know, we were – you know, they, they called us little ladies, you know. That was real sweet. So I love the Hells Angels. So I look up, and there's this big, big Hells Angels, and he's like, you got Got to sit down. And I looked back and I said, look, I paid my ticket, my paid for my ticket, same as you. And I'm just going to take a few pictures and then I'll sit back down. And, and my friends were cringing because they thought my oh, male oh. friends were cringing because they thought they were going to get creamed, you know, by right, these right. I took the photos, sat back down. And then on the break, I, you know, I was walking around the mezzanine and this guy comes up to start heading towards me. And my, my male friends are going, Oh my God, we're going to get creamed. And he comes, he goes like, Sorry, little lady. You know, it was just, we were policing it, and I just thought that, you know, I'm, I'm real apologizing. <laughs> wow. So, I, I hope you included that in the article, an apology from Hell's Angels. Yeah, no, wow. No, so this was in 68. So fast forward to, like, early 80s, and I see Starship. So, man, start, you know, those guys and, and I have this connection. So here I am covering the thing to try to get the job, right? And so um, Paul starts getting upset with security and it was um what venue was it in Columbus, Ohio? I think that's Memorial. There we go. Can I interrupt just for a second? Sure. I'm curious, journalist to journalist, uh -huh. were you was your plan to cover the music, the performance, or both? Well, nice question. I was supposed to review the performance. Okay. This was that, that was the gig it was. It was okay. to review the performance. And so, I you apologize. Know, oh, no, no problem. But, you know, you had your little, back in the day, you had your little reporter's notebook that supposedly set, sit in the palm of your hand. I've got a small hand. So, it, you know. and then you had, I, I had to fashion how my little finger works. So I didn't write over what I'd already written in the dark. Right. So here I am taking notes. And, um, Paul keeps getting upset because the security people are telling, <clears throat> the fans to get out of the aisles and sit back down in their seats. And Paul keeps stopping the, and going like, look, there are fans. It's cool that they're, that they're, you know, in the aisles and dancing. You know, it's sort of part of the, you know, the Haight-Ashbury, you know, that whole yeah, thing. Yeah, and, um, and he started getting really upset. And, um, and then the guard, the guard jumped up on the stage uh, for whatever reason, I don't think anybody knew, and sort of sort of 
wanted, you know, was giving Paul attitude about this. Well, Paul took his guitar and kabonged him. Holy smokes. The dude dropped to his knee. Wow. Wow. All hell broke. Um, Then they had called the police and a line of about 10, you know, blah, blah, Um. 10 cops came on the stage, you know, you know, completely shut it down. So there I'm left like story here. And so I get up and I've got my, my little press pass thing on. So I got backstage and, um, because they couldn't find Paul and, uh, but they shut the, they shut the concert down. And, um, so I interviewed Gracie Slick and I swear to God, I heard that bless her heart. I heard that she was a heavy drinker, but just confirmed it because I swear to God, if, if somebody had lit a match, we both oh. would have. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. But then, and then I, I interviewed Marty Balin, who died a few years ago. I was a big fan of Marty. And, uh, and they were like, well, we don't know what happened to him. And so anyhow, one, one of them sort of winked at me and said, uh, I think he might be, uh, in the bus. And, uh, but yeah. And so anyhow, I sort of went back to the bus. So, and I, I interviewed and I interviewed cops, blah, 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 blah. So I got back to the news. What a great I, story. Yeah, and so I did the review, and so, you know, I was... So, I'm sorry, don't, please, you go back to the bus. I go, you know, I, I go back to the bus, and I try to look, I sort of tapped on the door, and all the roadies were sort of grinning at me, and I said, look, guys, I'm a fan, I'm not going to rat Paul out, what are you kidding me, you know? And so it was, like, really, really fun, and, and, and you know, everybody was sort of circling the wagons to protect Paul, you know? I'm sure he was in there, they hidden him somewhere, but anyhow... Uh, they never found him, and it, it all got dropped or whatever. So anyhow, um, I go back to the newsroom, and I'm going, how do I approach this? Okay, I'm going to do a uh, straight review. Right, of- TikTok. Yep. Yeah, what, what, you know, that was what I was hired for. But I'm going to do a sidebar of, like, a breaking news story. And it got it got featured. Uh, the editor was really happy for me, and I just for what I did, and I got the job. <laughs> Thank you, Very Paul. good. Very good. <laughs> anyhow, I sort of digressed, but anyhow, it was, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun. And then later on, um, I was made art critic. You know, this is down the road a bit. Sure, sure. It was a lot of fun. And and then when um, Yoko had released John's drawing as lithograph and had released them worldwide to a uh, various amounts of, uh, you know, galleries here, there, and everywhere. One of them was in Columbus, Ohio, so it was ah, my church. And so, uh, like, great, you know, I put it on my the docket that I was going to re- review it, and I said to my editor, a woman I really had a lot of respect for, um, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to interview Yoko Ono, and she said, why would you want to do that? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> She's the bitch who broke up the Beatles. And so I went, she said, well, do what you want. And so, you well, know. Well, okay. I, I, I can I, live with that. And so I endeavored to find the connection, and I had to get permission, blah, blah, sure. blah, blah. And they said, um, okay, uh, we'll let her know that you're interested. And I said, can I record it? And they said, sure. 
and all that. And then they said, but call back um, in a couple days at this time, and we'll tell you if you've been granted permission. I found out later that her her system was all this because journalists have given her such a hard time. Oh, the poor thing, my God. It was terrible. So she had, of course, was a little bit of trepidation about journalists, right? And I'm like, tell her I'm a fan of hers. I have, I have, uh, you know, her, her blue album and, you know, and so, um, anyhow, I found out later from people sort of in the know that that time period was because she, she consulted her psychic. <laughs> well, she was very big in, in that universe. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I'm, I have to say that I, I was psychically approved. <laughs> hey, the universe said it was cool, so hey, you're in. That's, but that's wonderful. She was so, she was so cool. And the other thing is, she told me little stories. I'll send you the tape if you want to hear. Oh, that. I'd love to hear. Oh, absolutely. That's and such a gift. Thank you. But yeah, but she said she, and we talked about. We talked about her voice. We talked about her a lot because, you know, as an artist, I knew who she was. Yeah. And so, uh, quite so an we artist talked in her own right before before John. Absolutely. 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 And so um, we talked about. She even mentioned like the B fifty the B fifty twos that she thought she was in, in, influential. And remember the song Rock Lobster? You know uh-huh. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow. Yeah, no, I had a, I had a real cool time. I, I just, and the, the, the 60s, oh man, I, I couldn't have had more fun if I had tried. And I tried to have fun, but I did a lot of cross country road trips. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, east to west. And I still love road trips. I've done now. Let me, let me ask you one more question in your critic hat. Mm-hmm. Of all the rock shows, of all the rock bands you wrote about. Which one sticks out the most? Which one either impressed you or disappointed you the most? Which one surprised you the most? Just just one. Just I'm sure that's hard to do, but it's hard to do. I covered a lot of blues too, because I I love blues. And my my first boyfriend was a blues guitarist, so I was just I was their manager. Good for oh, you. Got a gig stuff anyhow, but I have to say, and this is going to seem really odd, Coco no. Taylor. She's Did very you know she Yeah. So, yeah, blues blue, blue singer. I was really impressed with her. I mean, you know, of all the – I saw so many greats. Sure, sure. In terms of uh, soul, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Coco Taylor comes to mind. Uh, Jay Giles put on a good show, too. Uh-huh. But, well, Starship just – I mean, that – that rocked it, so that just stands out. But flows against the empire as as uh, airplane and their starship stuff was top notch, just top notch. I had a chance to see him a couple times myself. And, oh, did you? Oh wow. yeah, oh yeah. I, in fact, I got to see a lot of bands that when they were just starting out. I I worked for a concert company as production manager, sound engineering, lighting design, staging, logistics, all that stuff. Um, I staged a lot of people. One of my favorite stories was uh, <laughs> we had Bobby Blue Bland and B.B. King for a double night. Okay. But let me, before that, one of my real favorite blue shows, we called it the Night of Three John Stars. We had John Hammond, John Lee Hooker, and Dr. John. 
Whoa. And I came up with a gimmick that as each John hit the stage, I lowered a brilliant star of sequence and hit it with a blue spot. So by the end of the night, I had three blue stars up there and each one, you know, very different styles, but all, every one of them was just magnificent. But I, I was going to tell you a B.B. King story. This is so funny. Um, I worked, <laughs> I worked for a concert company that was a not-for-profit, okay? And consequently, there was a lot of things that we did at, at any rate. <laughs> at, at one point, uh, the very last night of planning before the show, the young lady who did PR said, I've got this great idea. Let's draw a ticket number that night at the show and somebody can get their picture taken with BB King. Well, I wasn't thrilled with that because I think that a lot of times uh, cute little white people impose on, on major stars to no end. And it's oh, yeah. often, if it's not fully insulting, it's just the size of insulting. And I said, please, no, 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 look, we're paying them. They're working hard. They're artists. You know, don't give them a little space. Let them have just that little bit of dignity. Please, no, 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 no. It wasn't going to happen. Okay. So first, first part, before the show starts, B.B. King's manager, who was a charming fellow, very, I mean, New Orleans to the get, derby, cane, vest, bag of gree gree. He comes out to me and he says, now, Richard, <laughs> who's going to take care of me? I said, well, um, that, that gentleman over there, that's the producer, and he'll have the money at the end of the night, and he'll take care of you. He said, no, 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 no. Who's going to take care of me? And I said, <laughs> well, let me explain something. I'm the technical manager, technical producer. I cover all bases. But there's two things I don't do. I don't procure women or drugs. I don't do it. But anything other than that, I'm your man. And he said, now, look, this is Miami. Who's going to take care of me? I said, oh, okay, 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 okay. All right. The guy over there with the leather bag, I think he'll have anything you need. So BB played the fastest blues that night I'd ever heard. Yeah. He was a cool guy, you know, don't you think? A wonderful guy, absolutely wonderful guy, and they suffered in position quite nicely. Very generous of them. The other thing was we had a double show: Bobby Blue Bland, BB King, Bobby Blue Bland, BB King, with a break in the middle to change audience. Right. So yeah. our, our schedule was very tight. It was a union hall. We had to get in and get out and get done. Do on to the next. So I warned the PR gal. I said, "Listen, if we're going to do this, I mean, if you absolutely have to do your little drawing and have a little nice person go back there with BB and get his picture taken, that's all well and good. But it's got to be done in time. I'm, I, I'm, I'm time critical. So I said, I'll give you a 20-minute warning, a 15-minute warning, a 10-minute warning, a 5-minute warning, and then we got to go. There's no spare time. So I send my guy, gives her the 20-minute warning, gives the 15-minute warning, gives her the 10-minute warning, the 5-minute warning. She's not there. So I turned to BB's orchestra and said, go, you're on. So they get out there, and they're tearing into a very lively big band blues. Okay, BB's in the wings. They're ready to go. Here comes the PR gal. Um, why'd you let them start? I said, there's this thing called time, see? And, like, we had to go. And she goes, 
Oh, no, you got to stop him. So I turned to the producer, her boyfriend. I said, listen, we don't have time for this. It's, I missed, you know, I gave him the warnings. She missed the warnings. It's time. They're on, man. They're on. He said, Rick, uh, can't you stop them? And I said, sure. So I walk out. Yeah, there's like 20-piece blues orchestra tearing up the stage. I said uh, to the band, the band director, the music director, I said, listen, we have an emergency announcement we have to make. He stops the orchestra in full tear. Here comes PR gal. Hi, we're going to draw a card. Ah, no. So Johnny and Mary can come backstage during the break. And now the picture take. I didn't yeah. make any friends that show. <laughs> wow, what an experience, though, that you did that. How many years were you doing that? That's I amazing. did it for a little more than 12 years. Oh, wow. Oh, some amazing things. One other what story I'll tell you real quick. Privilege. Oh, no, this is, oh, this is great. I just can't believe that. Oh, what a, what a, a three day jazz thing. and blues festival. The closing day, I got John Mayle up on the stage. Oh, on one John stage, And I got five stages going, right? So I've got stage managers on each one. I'm bopping from stage to stage, depending on whatever the problem is needed. And I get a call from the mail stage. They go, Rick, you got to come over here right away. And I said, Okay, now also this is 83, 84. Miami is Miami Vice right now, okay? Um, a lot of skiing going on. A lot of yeah, skiing. Yeah, 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 I get you. So, oh, I, get so you. I said, what's the problem? He said, well, John Mayall's got a fifth of whiskey and a gun. He's waving him on the stage. And I go, <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. So I buzz over to the stage. George Ween from the Ween... You know, big North Sea Jazz Festival and uh, Newport yeah. Jazz is backstage. And my stage manager is black gentleman. He has white. <laughs> He's like, man, I'm not going anywhere near that. And I said, I understand. I'll do it. So I walked up in the wings. And I said, John. And he looks over and I said, John, look, this is Miami. They shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> Put the gun down. <laughs> and he went, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So he brings me the gun. Oh my God. It reminds me of that um talking head with that put away that gun, this party simple. <laughs> well, that was part one with Leslie. And as you could hear, she is such an amazing person. Um, Misha, you had a couple more things you were gonna say about Leslie before uh, we got disrupted a little bit. Well, I hope the connection will be more continuous this time. Uh, because I hope it remains like this. Because, you know, in Romanian trains, you never know. Nevertheless, <laughs> uh, I was so happy and so honored to listen to uh, the poetry of Leslie and to her wonderful and, uh, Actually, it was the first time in my life I was more or less... Uh, life with her and uh, directly with uh, her poetry and this helped me a lot uh, with understanding on one hand her literary creation on the other her plastic art creation and I got and I got 
much more convinced and uh, uh, much understood uh, even better and more than one without the other is not possible to understand is not possible to interpret because now a third dimension intervened that intervened that means herself life her wonderful spirit her wonderful life experience and all this completed this wonderful impression of an equilateral triangle uh, consisting in her life experience her life intervention her literary dimension the literary dimension of her creation and the plastic dimension of her creation i am happy proud and privileged to have had the opportunity of being in contact with her with her wonderful creation and i wish her a lot of good luck with everything she is going to do since now Leslie constable good luck congratulations and all the best bless you well now we're going to hear part two we're actually getting around to uh, <laughs> getting her to recite some of her work so here we go part two leslie constable thank you again misha as always an erudite insightful analysis here we go with leslie thank you okay. enough about me let's let's then talk okay so you've been writing professionally as a journalist and as an art critic. Um, I'm sure that that pen of yours is also going a little wild. Talk yeah. about your early performance days as a poet. Oh, okay. So, hey, you know, the, historically, there, it, there are many examples of art critics who, when they stop doing that, because it's an intense job and eventually every art critic stops doing it, um, it's it's a it's it's a really cool job, by the way. It's really cool um, that they become poets. There's there are many examples of that. So um, you just get used to the rhythm and writing about art. It's luscious. It's <laughs> it's wonderful. And you grew um, up with Mozart beside your bed. You're crazy. No, no, oh my God. I'm sorry. Sorry. So no, it's just luscious, just l- luscious, and and you know it's like they're paying me to do this, really. <laughs> well, yeah, I bet you felt the same way about sure. I'm getting paid to do this. I, it's my, my passion. I just love it so much. So um, yeah, so I moved away from Columbus, Ohio, because I had been in academia too long, and it was just time to. Uh, I've been, you know, really embroiled and you know in the arts community and love the hell out of it but it was just time to be quiet and do something else be, be very private so I moved out to Santa Fe New Mexico just amazing place and um you know I did write occasionally for the Santa Fe New Mexican um about art that was cool but um I had this place called the Aztec Street Cafe mm. and I've got four kids and so uh I'd be, I dropped them off at school, and my habit was to sit in the Aztec Street Cafe, and I was used to writing, so I started writing, writing like a maniac, just writing poems, writing poems, and they just poured out of me, and um, yeah, it was an amazing, rich period for me, and also, I had teenagers, and, and um, I was sort of, what, the... Uh, crash bad kids you know they a lot of them just stayed at my house so i'd wake up in the morning and i'd be picking my way across the body <laughs> <on the living room. laughs> making my way to the kitchen to make 
you know, put on the coffee pot. And this one one friend of my son's, Lex, Lex Wensford, used to smell the coffee and get up and sit with me. And we would chat, drinking coffee, while I was writing poems. And, you know, at the same time, so the multitasking. And he'd say, let me see it. And bless him, he was, what, 15? What an amazing critic he was. And what a wonderful, like, poetry companion. He was, like, my biggest fan, and he encouraged me. Isn't that cool? Very much so. And so, anyhow, fast forward, so I decided to um, go, go down to Mexico. Lots of reasons. Um, speak, I, you know, I took Spanish in, in high school and, and, and visited Mexico early on in the way early 70s. And um, anyhow, so uh, took off to Mexico uh, with the plans to find a place down there and live, which I eventually did. And uh, ended up, yeah, down in this little village called Sayavita, Nayarit, Mexico. And um, moved down there, and my youngest went to school there, and he's he's back up in Santa Fe now, but he speaks flawless Spanish because he went to school in the Mexican school, not the gringo school, speaking Spanish. Anyhow, so I cut my teeth at Bar Don Paso in the plaza of Sayulita, Mexico, at the open mic that, that is a really hip town, a lot of internationals. And a lot of musicians. The music was just fab. And so, um, so they started doing this open mic. And I thought, I know I'll get up and read, but I found really quickly that, um, you know, to, to sign up to be early because once people start really hitting the bottle and really drinking, you don't want to be reading poems. <laughs> <laughs> Not that they were disrespectful. It's just that they couldn't focus. And <laughs> anyhow, so um, that's that's how I cut my teeth as a performance uh, poet, is which I sort of call myself. Because man, if you can read to like a like a bilingual crowd, uh, you know, in a Mexican club, yeah, like that's awesome. everything. Everything happened. Everything that could happen happened, and you gotta, you gotta had. It was important to have good peripheral vision to duck. (laughs) 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 My favorite story, though, is when I I read this this poem called "The Summer of Love," which uh, you might have heard it the other night, but. I, I made pal. I have made pals really easily. I, I love everybody, and and I especially love you know, people younger than me because they're they're really cool. And uh, sat down with this this, this kid guy who's in his twenties, whatever, and and he was like, he kept saying like, oh yeah, the summer of love, nineteen sixty nine. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, uh, well, why are you getting that from? It was 1967. He goes, no, it's 69. I'm like, what are you arguing with me? I was there. And he says, uh, oh, it's like, well, the Gap, you know, the Gap had this whole line of clothes called 1969. I went, ah, ah, ah. I said, what? I mean, come on, dude. I said, I'll tell you what, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write you a poem about 1967. And so, so you'll know, I'll just give, give it to you straight. 
So the next week I got up with the mic and I started reading Summer of Love. And um, in the middle of it, I decided I was going to sing Somebody's Love, uh, you know, in homage. You did it beautifully the other day, by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. So, yeah, you heard this story. So then, uh, anyhow, so in the middle of Summer, you know, singing Somebody Love, um, I'm facing the audience, and behind me is the plaza. And suddenly I'm realizing that I'm hearing all these voices behind me in the plaza. And I sort of, like, turn around and look, and there are all these Mexicans singing something love. It was such a, it was a happening, you know. It was really a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's so that, that's how I cut my teeth. And um, uh, I put on some events. You know, I, I would put on some reading events, and uh, and I knew all the other poets in town. Um, and so, yeah, we sort of bonded together, and it was just such a supportive and fun, you know, hip place, and, and uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. But, you know, eventually I wanted to come uh, back here to the U.K. Um, I do live in the U.S. sometimes because um, I want to be near near my kids there. Um, even though they visited a lot in Mexico, but um, <clears throat> I came here to be amongst people who, you know, their first language is English, and the way, especially the Brits, and I grew up, you know, understanding and Brits speak real well, all the patter and all the weird phrasing and stuff. Um, so it's really a delight to be around those who, you know, English is their first language. Um, and to be part of the internet now, the international community, um, especially with what um, Dear David Sarah provides, um, Spoken World, and and a lot of the other hosts. It's just, uh, I mean, isn't it the most amazing, enriching experience? I mean, I, I know that you're. I yeah. find it so beautifully ironic that as we all have been in isolation. Mm-hmm. These these new poet connections, these new writing connections have flourished across the globe. And we are linked up to poets, you know, from Sri Lanka to Bangladesh to India to Vienna to Prague to Budapest. They root. They root. Yeah, root. everywhere. It's, it's so wonderful. And it is, you know, poetry is so, I think, undervalued in the West so much. Uh, and, and at least in America, and to find that we're building these bridges in a world they don't even know, you know, right. and and poets have reached out and found our common hearts. Uh, it, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Though, no, I just feel so. And the irony of in these times with the pandemic, and and that it almost feels like. You know, we're we're holding the light or something, um, and you know we're we're helping to provide a beacon. I think because so many of the poems have been about our experience now, and to be able to share these experiences and ourselves, and I think poets in, from you know any culture, any generation, we are the chroniclers. Um, then in an interview, I love the Paris Review, once, I forget which poet was interviewed, but um, 
he was talking about poetry and he says, well, poetry is simply a prayer. And I love that. I love the simplicity of it. And, you know, it's, here we are, you know, we're the chroniclers of, of our time. Exactly. In, in fact, I have made the argument many times that one of the oldest stories we know, we know the stories of poets. Yeah. The ballads. Yeah. The chroniclers. Now, obviously, this is the perfect segue to hear <laughs> some of the amazing, fantastic poetry of Miss Leslie Constable. Please. Okay. Among those wonderful pieces of yours, let's hear some of your favorites. Let's hear maybe something new that you don't even trust yet. I don't know. My dear, oh, I'm doing that all the time. I'm the like, floor is yours. I'm spewing them out. All right. The first one is a favorite of mine, and it's about, and I read this at the at, at Bardom Pato, and it's about writing poetry. It's called The Seated Cloud. The thoughts that come to you come into your head and rumble round the snake insidious, the ones you know these thoughts, the ones that have shape, their own substance and form, image, even music that cannot be given voice. Never that, because this asks too much, too much, like clouds forming and shifting, disappearing and reforming. They are yours, fragile, inside the workings of your mind, like when the sun hits cloud, fragile. They are amorphous, unheard, and deeply, deeply private. These ghosts of thought, your ghosts of ideas that form wanting birth, yet hide, wanting, yet hide, waiting, and want, and wait. And jeer sometimes these phantoms that cannot stand up to the proof of considered thought that cannot stand up to language, that cannot exist in the light of day, but only in containment. Is that what your life is? Is that who you are? No one knows but you. They are the formation, your thoughts, of clouds. They are the beginning. They are the seeds, clouds becoming rain, or the easy words you say, words without clouds when the sun is right up there bold and over hot in the sky. Even though you are in shadow, these words you say, forming them with your mouth, your tongue, your lips, is this you? We can falsify, we can deny, we can withhold, hold deep into us those truths which have no form but only words, or which have only form and not words, or words that won't form and wait until forever, where the true thoughts override them with chit-chat, with the mundane, the inane, but there is that moment, yes, when the weight of, the weight of necessity, the weight of insistence, the weight of our own truth, the need to get these damn things out of our heads and finally, deeply say, speak, talk, write, scream, get out, get out, get out, shape, the constructs, the towers. The rivers, the pyramids, our islands, the bridges, bridges, explode them all and talk, write, be, make the bridge, fuse them, private ideas, public talk. You are the seeded cloud. You are the rain. Make us all wet. Beautiful. 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 Thank you so much, Leslie. This one is homage to my 
beloveds, my dear children, my four children. And um, it's a real private moment, I think, as, as a parent. Um, it's called While You Were Sleeping. While you were sleeping, I was awake watching. While you were asleep, I was awake waiting for you to wake. And I waited and watched sometimes, checking for signs, the chest rising and falling slowly. Yes, he is breathing. Yes, she breathes. The movement of the eyes behind closed lids, rapid and slow, to repeat these patterns of dreams as they arise behind the eyes, beneath translucent eyelids, the color of flesh, your flesh, like a pearl, glowing, and the small whimpers. The singing, the short barks as you dream, the symbols of sleep, awakening, waking, awake. I've watched you as you sleep and know them all. I know you. You remained asleep. You did not stir in me. My hands forming the ancient signs, the meaning of these deep in the body, sleeping still. These caves of desire asleep and in sleep, waking, the chill, dark still, calm desire, the breath of desire, the chest moving in response to the signals of behind the eyes, up and down the chest, aging in increments as I watch, constant as love, we wait. Together in the sky, strung like curls to form a necklace in the sky, nearly imperceptible, the hint, the dark glimmer at night of these orbs shining separate, it together, except when there is the moon up there, which, like us, shines like the moon. We are, are the moon, each our own which shines. Sleep, my love, my precious one. I will not wake you before your time. I will not wake you with my own tremors of fear or of rage which shake me, for they are my own, mine to own, she who is wakeful. While you were growing, I was grown, a tree with roots which go down to the middle of earth, my mind spiraling up now as branches passing through the reaches and there up into the darkened sky. While you were sleeping, I traveled there up high and forgot myself and you. I forgot you remembering me, and I forgot I was awake and you asleep and forget myself, and simply kept going, wakeless or not, wakeful or not, I forgot, and imagined me the baby this time, once again, sleeping as I was, and I will be again, wakeless, wakeful, weightless, in dream, in memory, I simply kept going. Beautiful. 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 I've got some short ones, so, yeah. I I have yeah. no problem. Please, my dear, as you, as you, as you're given. Okay. This one is, um, I've, I've, I've lived near the sea. That's sort of what I do. Right now I'm in Weymouth, uh, Dorset. And so the, uh, the sea's just right out there. <laughs> this one's called The Sea Will Take You. And this had something to do with sort of a, a tragedy. Uh, I was, I was living in Clacton on Sea. Uh, which is on the East Coast, on the North Sea, actually, and it can be very fierce. And um, went down to walk on the front, and there was there was a whole bunch of yellow tape. And uh, I asked the police, and they said, "Ooh, somebody somebody washed up." Uh, 
So I wrote this um, as a response. The sea will take you. Because the sea is dangerous, you know. It's, uh, you've got to gotta be mindful. The sea will take you if you swim past the rocks. Will it give you back? When you enter, how will it be with this, the agreement you have struck to surrender and now be one with this body large and vast and your body small? Do you know in this joy of submersion, the light, play, and sometimes fierce of the water having you, what it will do? In taking you, will the waters decide moving you? Will the sea decide? With taking you, in taking you, is that what you will allow? Or in your entering, surrendering to it in some way, do you decide? In going, in being taken, where would that be and how far will you go? Do you know? To know we are small when we enter the waters is that which is hidden from you, from us, your smallness, not something you can know. It is how it is and always has been this way. It is a pack drawn up, that moment of entry, the cells of each body vast with body small, the body and body now joined and in movement. The shrieks of joy with the shock of water and surprise emitting from your throat that rivals the roar of waves and you sing together the fierceness of life celebrating. If the sea takes you, will it give you back? Bravo, bravo. So this, oh, thank you. This next one is about my experience in New Mexico, which is a very magical place. Um, so I'll just, I'll read it. It's about the experience of driving at night. If the darkness does not see the light, it was traveling at night that we crossed down into the desert, the still cold, a gentle slap of awakeness. You can see clearly in the desert at night the distances, the spaces near to you and far off, quiet yet alive. You drive and see sometimes things that are not there or maybe there. It doesn't matter. If you keep driving, you forget after a while of everything. It's the stillness of it in the moment, the capture of thought and way to make it go on forever, the inner dialogue that loud in your ear, your head, your being that you think you are hearing it, the you inside of you, the you outside of you at the same time. You are not hearing the echo of self in the high desert, like Sister Coyote when she yips to signal to the others, or when she sings to herself, or when she sings to the moon, or nothing at all. That is not what you are hearing, the you inside of you the you that you are hearing. You are not. It is a sense beyond hearing. Coyote knows when she hears the echo of herself in the canyon, the sound bouncing off stone and coming back to her, she is simply being in the desert at night under the moon. What you see is not what is before you, but something else. What you hear is something else. It is the way of things at night in the desert. It is okay that you do not know. If the darkness does not see the light, does it know it is dark? <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Well, I've just got some um, real short ones, I think, that I want to end up with. I, uh, I, tend, I, I tend to want to write epic things, but uh, as things have come around, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying uh, – 
you know, smaller things, simple things. May, uh, I, may I read one for you? Oh, yes, please. I, I, uh, I was so taken by your poem about the children that it reminded me of the one I wrote for, uh, for mine and mm. uh, a tribute I wrote to mothers. I've had the good fortune and, and blessings to have three children, and uh, I, I had the extraordinary experience of my wife and I decided, after a very, very bad experience with the medical profession, to have mm-hmm. our, our first at home oh, with good. midwives. Good. And uh, it, it really, I think no man... <laughs> Should, should make love to a woman unless they've experienced what it's like to see a woman giving birth. Because if that doesn't give you some respect for women, I don't know what does. Um, but that being said, I think you, you, as a woman, know exactly what I'm talking about. So I wrote this, a, a small tribute to mothers, because I think it is such a, such a grace. Okay. It's called The First Gifts. Yes, you welcomed those babes at your breast, gave them from your own life's sustenance, thought first of them, their pleasure, their pain, their need, then some other, then yourself. You brought them through the most holy, sacred gate they will ever enter, into the world and into a human life. It can be readily said, you gave them the first gift before the gods at the cradle round bestowed those precious others you clothed them in flesh you gave them their first form what cells and man and fashion could give you gave first before your gift there was nothing and your giving self made every other giving possible When the first cry is heard, it calls your name. When each searching hand first reaches out, it reaches out for you. When you press those tiny lips to your breast and smell those first tender breaths, that sweet garden scent is meant for you alone. As tiny fingers first begin the long, lonely search, They search first for you. Never is this new being more beautiful than when seen with your eye. Never is the kind of blessing given than that given from your eye and your heart. No wonder mother is so universally blessed. No wonder such special blessedness belongs first and last to mothers. She has given so much of her flesh and her heart the first gifts. Well, that is so profound. It's so beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm tearing up. It's really beautiful. That's like the perfect, really perfect poem. Oh, my God. Is that going to be in your collection? Oh, it is. It is. God, it's so perfect. Thank you. What's the title again, please? The First Gifts. Yeah, of course. Oh, my God. Oh, Rick, it's so beautiful. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Wow.
Okay. Um, one other one I would love to share with you, if if the gods will grace me to find it. <laughs> it's called Each Morning's Cup's Blessing. After I'm granted a return today, I pour water from the sacred stream into a pot where coffee is brewed. I take the brown bean, the sweet, the bitter, the spicy, so like the moments of life, precious, darkly rich with flavor, brewing them with the heat of life. And each day, one by one, I drink one day from my Holyoke cup and think of my darling summer. And the next morning from my Jan Hus cup and think of my darling meadow. Each wonderful giving cup of life and love, small containers of the incredible rich brew of life's bracing flavor. Each morning, my ritual brings me just a kiss away from these lovely girls. I've had a small part in bringing to the flavors of this richly brewed life. And cycling from one cup on one morning and another cup the next, I drink from love and love. My morning coffee, another small kiss from the rich brewed life to these small gifting cups of my darling daughters. Mm-hmm. And each morning, as my lips kiss these cups, drinking the rich flavors, I bless these girls, these women who have brought such rich flavor to my little life. I love you both. I thank you both. And with each morning's coffee cup, I kiss your rich life, thanking the sea and the sky and the river of life for allowing me to love you and to share these small drops of the flavor of love and life. I love my daughters and drink life's rich brew to them each morning, to you and you, whether near or seeming far, just a drop and a lips kiss away with love. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. You. you just create such um, an atmosphere, such a a place to enter. It's really magical. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. My dear, if you want to share one or two more, we'd be very, very thrilled to hear them. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think I'll do being a bird. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Do you think if I were a bird, I would not answer, sworn to silence, a pact of only circling above? And yes, what if I circle as in the habit of wings? Is it only you to be there above looking down and down? Is it not mine, too, the looking, the looking to see even the smallest of fruit there, hidden in the branches, that which is hidden from sight when we are on the... It is mine. It is mine. It is mine, this looking, this fruit, being as bird. (laughs) Lovely. 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 I I, I can see fluttering wings and that (laughs) light, airy, you know... <laughs> Where we live now, we have such a, a just a bounty of birds. Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> we get to we get to hear birds singing. My wife has set out 
oh, probably eight different bird feeders across the yard. And wow. we, are, we are constantly hearing songs. It, it's such a, a lovely experience. It's like living in a park of birds. It's, it's oh, really lovely. That's wonderful. Yeah. My, my poems, I, I, I tend to see that, that the patterns there, it's like there are many birds, lots of clouds, the sea. <laughs> And so, blah blah blah. But birds are right up there, aren't they? Ugh. Let me let, let's leave this on a spiritual note because I think you're such a woman of spirit. Um, of the many many teachers that have touched your life and and uh, given you keen insights, would you mention maybe one teacher that you just really helped you have new insights? Wow, there's so many, so many. I think today I I will mention Angelica Gerbis, who was in the Department of Dance at Ohio State. I was in modern dance, but I also um, was so interested in in medieval and Renaissance dance since oh, I studied nice. that period a lot. And she, if you've seen any of the historical dramas, like, for example, Elizabeth I with, um, um, I forget who, who was the actor in that, um, I'm blanking. Um, but anyhow, um, Angelica was so renowned worldwide for her scholarship regarding Renaissance and medieval dance that she, she taught so many of the people who went out and also trained a lot of the actors to, to do these dances in the film. So she was amazing. And um, so the first important rule about um, medieval, medieval and Renaissance dances demeanor, and she paid me a huge compliment when she said that I had perfect Renaissance demeanor. <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, well, I think she was addressing your presence. You have such a divine presence, my dear. Thank you. Thank you. But so um, I think why I'm naming her is part of medieval and Renaissance dance is presence, as you're saying, but also understanding stillness, which is just as much a part of movement. When to pause, when to be still. And it's it 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 it's 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 it's, it's, it's like a spiritual concept too. So um, anyhow, that's yeah. I, I'm going to you know pay homage to Angelica Gerbis. So she she was remarkable. Let me say thank you so very much for being with us. My pleasure. It is a great honor to talk to Miss Leslie Constable. Such an honor to speak to you. Thank you, Rick. It was just such a pleasure every second. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was the amazing Leslie Constable. Uh, Misha, you want to say anything about our good friend uh, Noah Levin? Well, actually, interesting experience. After having listening, having listened all this poetry at literary. Add something. Nevertheless, we have a new poet. Now we have a new experience, and uh, we have to be aware that the 
this is this new experience is completely new and completely different from what we uh, had until now. That means it is something inspired by the street poetry in New York, on one hand as a, uh, as let's say, as historical experience, and on the other hand as an ecstatical experience. Let our listeners, our spectators, prepared for this. It is a completely new kind of poetry, nevertheless um, equally profound and complex one. Thank you very much, my friend. Here we go, Noah Levin. How are you, my friend? I'm all right. How about yourself? Splendid, splendid. It's been a a marvelous, exciting weekend, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Leslie Constable earlier today. Oh, cool. What a marvelous, marvelous poet and uh, human being, uh, just just an amazing person. As I anticipate you being the same sort of thing, you you struck me from the first time I saw you, brother, as a man of humor, a man of intellect, and a man of spiritual depth. Well, go oh, ahead. I really pulled one over on you. That's yeah, terrific. prove me wrong. Go ahead. Oh, I look forward to it. You know, <laughs> afterwards, just sitting there with your your head in your hands, nodding like, "What did I do? <laughs> Who did well, I invite?" The way I usually like to start these is to say, "Ladies and gentlemen, I've had the great good fortune to hear this poet read his work several times. I've always found him to be a poet of depth, a poet of humor." Let me introduce you, Noah Levin. Noah, welcome. Greetings. How are you? I'm very well, sir. You know, Poets of the East is designed so that we get a chance to hear not just some poetry of these fine poets, but a little about how they got started, how they started writing, when they realized they didn't have a choice, (laughs) or however you like to frame it. But, you know, I I believe that poets, really, it's a calling. Uh, You know, you're a poet because you don't have a choice. And, and tell me, when was it that you learned that you you had to be a writer, you had to be a poet? Oh man, you know, uh, uh, I think my first my first moment really was probably in high school. I mean, the same as probably a lot of us. You know, you're, you're sitting there and you're facing, uh, uh, you know, you're being told to look at different books and write exams. And as, as I was being exposed to different poetry when I was uh, 15 or so, you know, I remember thinking about going home, going, you know, I think I can do this. It was just something like it rhythmically clicked in my head as if, you know, you just stuck your finger in an electric socket and felt that surge. Uh, and then just from there, you know, just started writing and all that and started doing that. And then later on in life, uh, you know, in my late 20s or so, then hooked up with some friends who are just stunning poets themselves. And not, none of us were happy with the, uh, with the New York scene. I'm a New York City poet. And uh, born and bred here, you know, the, the dirt's under my fingernails here. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, you know, and just uh, uh, I remember hearing them and going, oh, my God, these guys are really friggin' good. I mean, I've known them for a while, but not like that. And just that was inspiring and just took it, you know, took it from there and just had to do it. It just kind of presses on you like a finger in the, in the brain. Well, let me ask you this. You know, there are poets, uh, I would say, of the pen, and there are poets who perform, and some of them are, are go across, go go both ways, if you will. And obviously, you're a poet who does some performance. Were you always comfortable doing performance? Yeah, you know, 
Uh, I, I got told I'm a bit of a ham sometimes, uh, which is not, you know, probably not how I am when I'm sitting in the chair, but it was, it was like Johnny Carson, you know. I'm not I'm comparing myself to the great Johnny Carson by any means, but uh, but I, I related where he talked once about how he uh, w- was uncomfortable sitting at dinner with a couple of people, but then put him in front of a million and he, <laughs> and he feels relaxed, you know. Um, so, so for me, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I always felt the most important thing to me personally is a few words on page, right? Uh, and if you have that, that's the most important thing. But then from there, it has a voice. And that's what I've always told people is, it's like, you know, it'll speak to you what, what its voice is. And of course you have your own range, <laughs> you know, you got your own singing voice, so to speak. And, and, uh, uh, you just take it from there and just try and get to the heart of it and, and, and express it out. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed, I've done stuff with like uh, 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 jazz musicians and, and all that stuff. It's a lot of fun. Let me ask you this. Um, I, I, I found in my years there are poets who speak to political or social matters and poets who are a little more introspective. Um, I'm guessing that you, you do both. You both are write introspective work as well as write some social commentary or political message. Is that true? Uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's just, so what, what, I t- what I've told folks, because I've always believed in trying to, I mean, right now I've been taking a lot of part in the, in the Zoom readings as, as you have, um, as well as many of us have. Uh, but in general, like to me, I, I love that moment when uh, creating that moment where someone hasn't read before, reads that first time and watching that. What I, what I tell people um, when, when I can build a, uh, an area for them to do that is just to write from the heart. And I know that sounds generic, but the truth is, is whatever's in there is the right thing. So for me, if it, you know, maybe one day I'm pissed about politics, uh, you know, I have a poem about just enjoying eating in a diner, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just that, that you know, and, and if you look at that original poem, you'll see grease from the burger that I was eating. <laughs> across, you know? Um, and it's just about what strikes you as true. It's not, uh, and, and what I tell everybody is not about necessarily the quality of your work, but if you do it something you believe in, um, regardless of the theme, you know, then it's it's beautiful to stay, stay An- true. Another question I, I always enjoy asking uh, is <clears throat> some poets write all the time just for practice. Some feel that unless they're compelled by spirit to write, in other words, that when that spark of inspiration hits, then they write. Uh, where do you fall in that uh, that spectrum? Um, probably the the latter. I really envy people in the in the first ones. I wish they'd take me to some kind of boot camp. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, really, really show me. Like uh, the few times I've done stuff where it necessitated my regular writing, uh, that was terrific but then at the same time I almost leaned on that like a crutch but once that went away um, I, I think I lost all inspiration for like a few years it was horrible <laughs> but that, that's just me I, I do it tends to be when I'm uh, when, when I have some inspiration but don't forget uh, uh, the valuable moment of a looming deadline is <laughs> very uh, <laughs> very very much so. a lot of creativity one of my real favorite writers uh, more in the short story vein and in the poetry vein is a fellow named Italo Calvino. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. Um, he writes really short stories. In fact, he has a claim that he has written the very shortest short story ever written. It's a, it's a one-liner. He, he woke up 
and the dinosaur was still there. <laughs> That's it. But I took some advice of his. He says, you know, write every day. Uh, when inspiration comes, then you'll be more prepared. And, in fact, he, he suggests an exercise where you take the simplest, most mundane activity uh, and, and write about it and, and because that's something you have no fear of showing to anybody. You're going you're gonna to write about this thing, and you're not going to show it to anybody. So you can really just either be the descriptive or the, or, or the colorful, impressionistic writer that you are, and just you know, dive at it. And uh, I had the funny experience. When I, right after I read that, I said, okay, the next thing I do, whatever it is, I'm going to write about it. And the next thing on my list was I had to gather the recyclables. So I wrote this narrative, <laughs> ended up being almost a 10-pager on collecting the paper products, the can products, the glass products, bundling them up, taking them out to the side of the road. And I ended up being so happy with what happened that I, I did end up sharing it. So, there, you know, there you go. Best oh, rules are broken. Uh, uh, five cents for each of my poem, you know. <laughs> Get the uh, average recycling rate on them. I'll be... Uh, <laughs> Well, I guess I'll have a couple of dollars. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, listen, if you were going to speak to a young writer, uh, someone not quite sure of their own voice, not quite sure if, you know, they can stand shoulder to shoulder with those battle-scarred poets like ourselves, what advice do you have for them? Well, I mean, you know, one, we've all been, we've all been that young writer, right? So that's, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's the for you. Uh, we all got to start somewhere, it, you know, but truthfully, I just tell them to just be themselves and just do it. You know, I mean, if they're standing in front of, uh, uh, in front of me, I'm just like, you know, you don't have to worry about, <laughs> am I really the person you're worried to impress? <laughs> you know, <laughs> got to tell you about the, the 20 things I messed up this week, you know? Yeah. Um, but truthfully, just, you know, just do it and enjoy it. Um, very simple. And like I was saying before, if you've written something and it's from your heart, you know, um, I think it's beautiful. I've heard so many poets who are very um, talented but don't necessarily have a voice. You know, like they don't, like, like it's not, it's a veneer, you know. <laughs> you look like, you feel like you're looking at a good paint job on a house somewhere. Uh, and that's, that, that's what's important. you got that good foundation. Go out there and do it. Noah, before we get into hearing some of your fine work, I've got to ask you one of my new favorite questions. What is the most unusual presentation of your poetry you participated in? Most unusual <laughs> set and setting? Because we've all done some pretty bizarre stuff. Oh, man, I've had some crazy ones. That's uh, a... <laughs> um, uh, you know, the first couple of years, so I ran a poetry group called the Buffalo Readings, um, or I co-ran it, uh, for about 12, 13 years. We're a New York-based um, poetry collective, I guess is the only way I can sure, call it. Sure, sure. Um, where we brought on a lot of different folks. And the first three years, we were up in a place called Casa del Sol, which was in the Bronx. Uh, we do regular monthly readings. I mean, there was no, this was in Mott Haven in the Bronx. It was a really bad neighborhood. And the building itself was a abandoned squat. Uh, we used to have a, um, this is really at our roots, so we had like literally for heat, we had like a giant tin drum that we'd put fire in. Um, uh, the guy who ran the place 
his name was Rafael Bueno, uh, and he actually was uh, responsible for the squat movement uh, in New York City. And wow. One of the main leaders of that, and, and we were really blessed to have him in our group, and he used to run this kind of cultural collective there. Uh, and it got into big fights in the city about trying to keep that building. I mean, he'd kept it for about 18, 20 years, right down to uh, closing down the expressway nearby and in protest and stuff wow, like that. Wow, good for you. That place was just wild <laughs> you know we had uh there was no doorbell it was fenced off uh we had one guy who was a fan he used to guard it with a with a dog and a gun um <laughs> that up. and uh uh yeah i mean we, we went for a couple of years and that place was nuts it was just uh one day i was talking to a friend of mine he's like oh yeah bueno's got a whole room full of tuxedos upstairs <laughs> and i'm like well where do you get a room full of tuxedos um and goes like well he traded a canoe for it and I go, now this is in the Bronx, right? You know, I'm, not, I'm talking out in the wild somewhere. He's <laughs> like, we traded a canoe for it. I'm like, well, we traded a canoe? And my friend's like, yeah, he had three of them. And then I just, you know, I just dropped in. That that was Casa del Sol. Um, it eventually got closed down by the, the the police and had a, like, four alarm fire that was in the news. Uh, 16 firemen got hurt. It was pretty crazy. Oh, my. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'd probably list that one. I could probably talk for a few hours about that spot. <laughs> so, tell me, sir, would you be kind enough to read a few of your fine poems for us? Absolutely. Let me just uh, reach across to my, my uh, pile of poetry over here. Excellent. What are we going to do today? I'm going to do... Well, you know, I was just talking about Buffalo, so I'm going to start with this one. So this was... Uh, um, so yeah, so like I said, I ran this group Buffalo Greens. We at a certain point we kind of uh, expanded to the West Coast and started hooking up with like jazz bands and all this stuff. So when we first uh, uh, when we first expanded to the West Coast, uh, I wrote this as a blessing to them. Uh, but instead, I kind of use it a bit as a um, kind of an intro prayer, if you will. Um, one thing about Buffalo is we used to shout. Uh, Buffalo would actually shout Buffalo, so you'll hear that in the poems at all. You know. Uh, for all of you listening to the speaker, don't don't lose your. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is called dedication to the West Coast Buffalo. Three thousand miles may separate, but the spirit is immeasurable by length of land. Although created in the gleam of the fires of the Bronx that warmed our bodies but inflamed our gasoline-laden souls, but the match has sparked in the distance in the lands three hours before now. So stand strong amongst the herd, because the others are a bunch of sightless bastards that we Buffalo unite against in our loathing. Even as their fire emits the night's darkness in a way that flickers shadows of solace, nothing even in front of those who have sight. Lead the charge in the land that faces the other way to its ocean, but yet face the correct way, every way, for all things of the spiritual warrior lay low the naysayers who do not and will not understand until a candy Teflon coating composes everything we must digest. I like my poison with vinegar because it makes me stronger and I'll stare down the fool who gave it to me till I lay dead on the earth that conceived me. Our spirits unite as our blood keeps us individuals. Buffalo! Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, I I have to recommend one of my short stories to you. A a short story called Cow Victory. I'm not going to tell you any more than that. I'm going to send it to you. I think I think as a spirit of the buffalo, you will appreciate it. How about another, sir? Sure, let's do. Uh, not that. Not that. Let's 
this poem that is buried in my pile, so all you listeners can hear shuffling of paper. Ah, here you are. Uh, so this was uh, uh, so back way back in 2007, uh, we got asked to uh, uh, be the featured poets on the Oxford University Press blog uh, for 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 try that again for April, not April. That's not a word for April uh, uh, Poetry National Poetry Month. And then they asked us back a little bit later and made us like featured poets for about six months or a year or something. So this got put on there for that. This is called Fairy Tale of Reality. Pages told as childhood goes, imagination was adrift. Forever tomorrow, like eternal timeline drawn in sand, stared across attitude, the only challenge to face. Fairy tale reality with truth and future. Possibilities roamed free as mind, but the clock ticked and secretly stole from flesh. Clock bleeds with each stroke as crush of hand became harder to bear. Chapter piled upon chapter, but wish dream could still be reality as mind still sailed on open sea. Tick-tock goes mind. Tick. 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 Tick goes wasted effort. Tock goes more to dream. Onward! Onward! But the hand on the clock welcomed in new reality. Stronger reality as bled dreams fell from clock. Pages ripped asunder, floating in sea of lost dreams slowly dripping dripping. The wheel of reality crushed mind. Gears grind. Clock tick. System in place. The book was a lie. Reality was set in stone and ambition adrift. The clock bleeds until sea of dreams claims souls and ship of hope is fool's way out. Book under arm. Book held high. Staring at clock, I see it was created by a thousand minds. Shriveled thoughts imagined into reality. Ticking together. Nightmares born to regulate and seal souls to keep mass weathered flesh together. Arms were, pace set in stone, movement sealed forward, eyesight stolen, gray is the only normality, wither in flesh, wither in mind, clockwork patter, it was all still ridden, souls sucked into time construct to strengthen the dreary many, tick pace, time lags behind in march, down road conquering high, a shout is heard, all hands to the ship, control the wheel, set course, set sail, Set mind, set death, set heels in place. Mutiny your own destiny. Sail on through the clock. Shatter the arms and mired parts until shattered gears stand at odds. The parts lay in waste and tick-tock will not win. Chapters still pile high, weighing down on sharpened mind creates new weeds. Supposed ship adrift is now at helm and book under arm remains guide to dream. Sail on now with clock in proper place in northern sky star and sky above and withered mind no longer told to pay. Sail on! Sail on! I'm sorry about that. Beautiful. I really enjoyed that. The You deliver with a passion that is beautiful, my friend. Really very nice. And listen, may I offer you one in, in somewhat of that same vein, okay? I would. I would both love and not be honored by that. Sir, let me let me share one that came to mind uh, from this that lovely piece you just gave me. Uh, ha, ha. Um, I, I write uh, a lot of um, I'm going to say socially oriented pieces. So oh. let me try this one here for you. I think you might appreciate it. 
Uh, let's see here. Ah, ah, ah. I, there's there's a feistiness to your voice, brother, that just really I, there's it, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, yep. this is written. Uh, if you can, and, and I know you can, if you can remember back <laughs> to the glory days of George W. Bush. Oh, I can. And, and that that <laughs> that incredible <clears throat> uh, reach for justice that they call homeland security. Oh God, yeah. So, so I wrote this little piece ah, that I call Homeland Defense. Ah, to the Vaterland, right? Okay. Between the kings of Saudi oil, who Shell and Exxon dare not despoil, and those of Wall Street's fiscal toil, where betting against a working man guarantees a stock's demand. And Desert Prince with generous eye holds courts in tents where gas station cards shall pay the rent. Does the oily hand of GH's show, the old CIA man still in control, pass the ID cards, but not a fakin', this way from true American icons shaken. Your face will now be pre-recorded, and all your flights will now be boarded. Um, arm the pilot and the stewardess, too. Next to the pillow and the barf bags fun, all passengers now will be issued guns. Ah, for a shootout in the airy blue, oh, what just a day can do. I picture the Stewie, tray in her hand, confronted by the wanted man, crosses the tray into his face, spins on her arm, and kicks him trace. He rolls across the cart to a Boy Scout troop who truss him up and steal his boots. His arms behind his back now tied, they bounce him over to the choir side, who pummel, pillage, then retire. And all those who were watching were inspired. And a group of civitan asked for a few fingers from his hand, but the brownie troop wants his bushy beard. You should have heard the things I heard. But then an old monk, Jesuit, gives him quite a goodly kick, and the secretary gets him with her bick. Though the pilot and co-pilot were vying for priority, they submitted their decision to the vote of the majority. Some wanted to toss him right out the door, but a cloister of nuns still wanted some fun. They dragged him back to the airplane's tail, and a rugby team ran him back to the gale. Up to the galley where they banged his head two or three times on the oven's lid, and a group of congressional aides in first class Pulled every hair from out of his ass. A covey of comedians dove right in with a left and a right to his nose and his chin. And a group of traders down from Duluth pushed him and mashed him into the roof. And the ceiling tiles and the overhead bin broke when they tried to stuff him in. But let this never be re let this be remembered and never forget. Don't ever wait till your library book's late.
thankfully, and I feel people are um, um, have really noticed what's happening in the world now. But was that your experience where you are? Did, did you find that there wasn't, I mean, not to say nobody, but that it was not too much? People were, I mean, oh, you had... Oh, absolutely. Type, but. My experience, I've been writing radical poetry since the anti-war Vietnam days. So, so I've been around for a while, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, almost everybody... If they thought about it, they were kind of like, let me, you know, God. And and I, I was among the very few poets from Homestead to Miami to Fort Lauderdale to Hollywood to West Palm Beach. I was one of the very, very few doing it. And what's worse, what other great sin that I myself always commit is that my muse works in rhyme. Hey. And, and I was told early on, you know, Rick, now you know that rhyming is passe. And I said, you know what? If my muse says rhyme, by God, I'm going to yeah. rhyme. And if it doesn't, and it doesn't always, then I don't. But I have to follow my muse. That's all I can do. Absolutely. You know, there's no people who go, oh, you know, poetry isn't this, poetry isn't that. You know, uh, it was like in the 90s, they were, oh, rock music is dead. It's all grunge now. It's like, well, grunge is rock, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so it's metal, so it's punk, so it's all of it. Um, you know, and you know, and all that's got its roots back in the blues, and, and you know, and poetry is just, you, yeah, do it from your heart. I don't rhyme because I'm a horrible rhymer. Nobody wants to hear me rhyme. I'll start sounding like a bad limerick, you know. <laughs> um, and and you know, you do. I sit there and I go, oh man, that's that's great. I wish I could do that, you know. And that, oh. that, that, uh, thank you. How about some more Noah? Sure. Is a longer piece okay? Please, please, sir. Absolutely. So this piece, I've missed it a lot, you know, because it's too long to read, to read in the uh, uh, Zoom open mics and whatnot. Not uh, too long here. Bless you, you know. Uh, so this is uh, this is in five parts. Uh, I think I read the first part recently. I started dusting it off. So it's been a while since I read it. So let's see. Hopefully I can keep up with it. Uh, this is called Consumer Nation. One, consumption. Gray syndrome whose towers and concrete spires and rectangular bleak formation till and pockmark foundations, supporting the structure of the great machine beast whose heart of fire turns us all on its great conveyor belt of uniformity. Desire the same, but the machine beast's belly is composed of unquenchable fire. And the clank of the machine, they create the product beat in a uniform pattern. You can lay your ear to the ground to hear the pulse. Nine to five and parts mailed in as businesses sell to businesses and sweat and dirt of grind knuckle plaza line laying to the cashiers, the great conveyor belt. That is the beast tongue pulls us in line for what we must have. I once found my happiness in a bag, and I looked over the masses lined up waiting for the parcel. As we all in unison bowed down on our knees to the metal work of dull landscape that lay in symbolic temples, to the mass consumption and life cycles that lay in the waste of generations, hinges on the axis of that great pounding heartbeat of the machine beast that you can hear when you lay your ear to the temples, to the temple of the factory that pounds to get, to get, to get salivate, to want, to buy, to buy. Oh, you must buy. Consume. You must consume as your knees dig deep upon the structure that keeps it all afloat, that keeps the beast moving, that underlies our great motivation, desire, and all burning consumption. Neon signs blind the eye, and Pavlov says, you want now. Don't look down. Don't look down. Look at what hinges next on the conveyor and wars late will lay waste to those who clamor to provide to our insatiable thirst. Happiness is a stuffed pig waiting for slaughter. True. Discarded. 
unwanted and no longer needed. The beast has forgotten, has disposed of its toys and mounds of forgotten shit that is piled high but out of sight of our direct eye. And we ignore. We ignore as we feed the shit to our forgotten elements. The understructure of the great walking beast who eats its own feces and leaves rotting, rusted testaments to our desire that has moved onward. Scraps strewn in eyesores is a necessary evil that will only be retaken by nature itself as it retakes everything and decay becomes the prize for all things once precious. Entropy is the destiny of everything your eyesight can see and anyone who says otherwise is a fool even as he thumbs the ticket that lays open face in the hand waiting for the inevitable end. One for one, odds and dust is our ultimate destiny because the universe specializes in waste management. And one day we will be nothing more than debris waiting with open arms to become one, one again with the thing that birthed us all. Consumed. Three. Aristocracy. Sitting atop the great machine beast controlling the greed in the same way that we are controlled by it. We dull it out and we eat it great city sitting in the center of all roads leading inward and precious few sit high above broadcasting the commercial drug that says we all want the beast wares to help it move on to help push history to its zenith to help saturate ourselves sit on top of the throne and from a long way down you can't even see how the product falls off the conveyor but we are the greed we are the must-have we are the thought we are the message we are the billboard that brainwashes and we bound lives in servitude and bleed dreams but if you buy it, the throne can grow a little higher on the product of useless crap that we all must have. We will never ask, where did this come from? Because the damning answer might make us look outside the society box and questioning leads to destruction of what was. When the knowledge says this doesn't have to be in the thrones we sit upon are transparent when the only real judge of a man is the substance he is composed of. Because greed is shallow and a throne is only as paper thin as the substance it's built upon. Wouldn't you hate to not want ever again? Four, propaganda. Salivation rules my dreams and nighttime nightmares alike. It says, stay satiated. It's how it must be. It's how it always was. It's how it always should be. It's for the best. This is all for the best. Don't question and don't ask. We should never betray the almighty beast because despite your possible personal misery, this is the moment history has led to. The divine utopian moment, and you should admire the billboard billboard signs as you're riding the conveyor belt tongue waiting to be devoured. Pick and choose what you want. Ride the glue that holds the beast together as we all sit happy and sad in our own swill. And we will chant, everything is fine. 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 Be proud to be part of the machine beast. Plug your head in as you ride the conveyor and listen to the dull hum that sends spittle down your cheeks saying, we're the greatest. And while you're feeling happy and satisfied today, why don't you go out and buy one of our fine products? And would you kindly please turn your head as we sell the fine wares of the special interests who happen to tell you how the world works? If you're not questioning it, your opinion no longer matters as long as you are as happy as the last fool to be consumed. Help the structure. Help the beast keep walking and eating and shitting, and you'll be a happy and productive little fool. The beast is in collusion with itself. Five. Epitaphs. The ending is here and has been since the start because the great machine beast our great, our great walking construction of greed with conveyor belt arms and conveyor belt tongue with eyes and mouth of flames and all-consuming belly has been gorging and growing fat on itself as plumes of toxic debris smoke billow skyward out of the top of the beast factory smokestack-laden head. 
We are the beast and we will happily consume ourselves to have more. And the ending. I see the ending. Monumental collapse and sorrow replaced with self-loathing and pity. Tools to build a new grand beast. When history comes with its inevitable spear, I doubt our future because this is what we want. To be docile and sit as fat, stuffed pigs building dreams of orgasmic size. Wallow in your fucking filth. But I can't stop questioning, and I hope it's not just me. I know it's not just me. Ask questions inward and ask yourself what it is that composes your soul. What do you want out of happiness, and what do you expect to use to feed and fan those flames of nourishment higher? All roads lead inward, which is why karma is still harvested by anything you feel like sowing. A different viewpoint is sometimes all that's needed to wash away the mind's fuck of deceit that lies its way into the fabrics of reality. Destroy the foundation and down with the beast. What's the point of anything if we can't strive to be better? Beautiful, brother. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> if, if you'll suffer a little more praise, positively Whitman-esque, my brother. Oh, man, wow. <laughs> Whitman is uh, uh, one of my later-day heroes. <laughs> later-day because I didn't read him until a little bit later, but yeah. Sure. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, How about know. another Noah? Uh, sure. This one. You know, uh, just, just to comment what you're saying, you know, it's... Uh, um, you know, what I ask from people, um, or, or just I guess what I like to hear from people, really, it's not my right to demand people have a thing, but it's, uh, um, you know, whether you agree with me or don't is, is irrelevant, you know. Um, just think things out on a one, as each item comes up, you look into it, and you try and figure it out. And then from there, you know, we all do our best. And to me, I love hearing from somebody who has a 180 opinion from me. Um, because I will probably walk away having learned something because I, I'd like to listen to it. And I hope the same to them. That and, is wisdom, you know, my brother. Great wisdom. Well, you know, and I heard some of that in, in your piece. So, you know, um, so uh, let's do, keep on the same topic. So let's do, uh, let's do this. This is Ununited States. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, I wrote this back in like October, I think, or something like that. Um Decayed soil ripples under serpent tongue current. History books tried to fertilize land, but plague took hold from leaders' mouth and radio broadcast parroted message to followers sitting in living rooms wanting to just pay bills and live life like you and I. Snake oil structure system collapse. Friend at throat of friend. Follow Pied Piper into the abyss. No longer hearing or wanting to know. Hatred divides while powerful reap on investment of your fears. Saying every life matters while they do, but should never be an excuse to steal the rights of black lives of marginalized. Change the, change the laws and steal basic humanity on gender. Stare into the eyes of chaos and vote for your chosen propaganda. Drink that swill and swallow. I saw the doctor today and she said I had a disease of mind reading too much online. Decayed thoughts, paralyzed independence. Read Tolstoy and call me in the morning. Nexus node, litter carriers slog through current turmoil. Where's my mail? Lost to political machinations and greed subservient pledges of unholy dollars, rip infrastructure and white knuckled power mad refuses to lose control. Watch it come tumbling down while toasting our very thoughts with belty pledge to talking heads who promise a better future and suck soul tears of dreams of future and happiness. Safetyness is a bargaining chip of those that gain. Live life in fear. Over the horizon, the illusionary enemy allows flank attack of those that pull the strings. 
it's not that hard. Promises of food on the table, a hard day's work offered and health of family. Freedom to live for you and I. Enemy holds, holds grudgel overhead and protects power treasure cords. Swear loyalty and smile will right to rip the sunder in exchange for hollow promises. Checkmate, you lose. Swallowed by a two-party delirium, George Washington said would devour our country whole. I love you all. Thank you so much, my friend. That that has been wonderful. Really well, wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me this platform and, and giving many poets this platform. You know? Sir, you speak powerfully and wisely. And for that, I thank you. As a brother poet, I salute you, my friend. I greatly appreciate it. You know, if I'm down in Florida, I'm going to have to uh, uh, come uh, knocking and <laughs> throw a few back. Well, these days... I hang my studio in another place. I'm in Tennessee these days. Oh, right on. That's uh, you know, it's funny in the Zoom, you know, in the Zoom era, I find like you know, 90% of poets I stumble across always from Tennessee or or uh, uh, or the UK. It's really quite <laughs> quite fascinating. I mean, and, and globally, but that, that's the concentration. I had no idea Tennessee had such a uh, uh, poet scene. Well, there's. I, I'm a brand new refugee transplant. Uh, COVID uh, and and uh, the incredible nihilistic government of Florida drove me away from there. Uh, I'd been down there for 30, no, no, jeez, uh, almost 40 years. And I saw that environment just destroyed. Corporations own the government. They own the scientists that, that, yeah. that cover up the problems, and I, I, I have videotape of, because I, I, I'm an environmental-oriented person, I produced a news show for, for uh, 10 years, and I've got all this videotape of the lies, and lies, and lies, and lies, and it, last year it got so bad, they had to close the ocean, my brother, they had to close <laughs> the ocean. You know, if the ocean isn't a public right, I really just don't know what it is. You got ocean, you've got land, and you've got atmosphere. <laughs> I, I tracked down <laughs> the senior scientist. I tracked down the senior scientist from Florida Fish and Wildlife, the, ostensibly the guy responsible for guaranteeing the quality of Florida waters, not just for people, because yeah. there are other important beings besides people. But you know what he said to me? He said he wouldn't eat a fish from Florida waters, fresh or salt. He said that there's only one fish that's safe to eat, what they call dolphin or dorado or uh, mahi-mahi sometimes. And he said because all the famous game fish, you know, the snapper, the grouper, and all that jazz, they're top-of-the-food-chain predators. They've been bioaccumulating all that poison. They've destroyed Lake Okeechobee, the largest lake in... They've destroyed it. It It is simultaneously toxic and people are still fishing in it because they're subsistence fishermen you know it just uh it, it makes my heart hurt you know it's um i've always said one of the most important things that could pass i mean they had a law for this which is campaign finance reform um i remember back in 2000 uh when uh, uh in the presidential campaign you, you might remember this when uh john mccain and um I'm forgetting the other gentleman's name. Uh, Senator Byrd. He was a famous basketball player. Yeah. Uh, you know who I'm referring yeah. to. Um, 
they got together. One was dem- one was a hardcore Democrat, the other was a hardcore Republican. They got together and they they went on to camera and said, "Well, you know, campaign finance reform is the most important uh, thing." And as such, we're getting together as two presidential candidates from opposite te- tickets to pledge that you know will will this needs to be fought. And, and McCain certainly, you know, although I, I've certainly disagreed with all of McCain's politics over the years, um, he really went after that. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court turned it over. What you have with with um, campaign finance and and also um, lobbying is effectively legalized bribery. Yeah, is the only way yeah. I can refer to it. Yeah. Um, and and when this country was created, you did not have these massive country-sized companies. You know who are more powerful. They're tax-free. Tax-free. Yeah, they're tax-free, um, and they have some. You know, and they have the power of, of you know more power than than smaller countries. Uh, and they're able to just legally buy these politicians on the left and the right. None of them are, are, you know, why would a politician work for for a poor a poor man or woman? Um, I can't give them millions of dollars. They work for their paymasters <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you know, um, and and then you see them. So they so they broadcast. You know, like oh yeah, you know, don't you want to buy this today? <laughs> and, and, well, so your your consumer piece is absolutely fabulous. Oh, thank you. I hope you've published it. Um, I think I published it on my own website years and years and years ago, um, which is, you know, since since slightly deceased that site. But, um, but it's yeah. It's good and, stuff. Um, oh, listen, I, I, need to, I need to say farewell. I want to thank you so much, my brother, for your marvelous, marvelous work. Thank you for spending some time with us. Well, thank you so much. Is it okay if I quickly plug a couple of things I have Please do. Please do. You know, it's, I'm so bad at plugging things. I actually had to write it down just so I would remember. I was sitting in front of me. I used to hit the stage and I forget to say my own name. I'm serious. <laughs> and I had my other posts start screaming at me, plug our things. Um, so, uh, uh, so one, a lot of us on Zoom are going to be part of a terrific movie that Finn Hall is putting together, which is A Desolation of Poets. Um, that's coming out um, to a YouTube near you. I think in about two weeks. Um, really honored to be part of. Um, and then I personally have two projects that I'm working on that I'm excited for. Uh, one is called The Sun Poem, um, and that is something I launched with a fellow poet, Mia Hansford, back in 2019, um, where what we did was went to the New York uh, Poetry Festival, and we set up as a vendor. And we, what we did is we told everybody, here, come write, write or draw something about the sun. We set up, like, all these art and writing supplies and all that. Uh, and then we created a giant sculpture out of it. The idea was, you know, a lot of poets, at least in the New York scene, they're kind of full of themselves. Everybody's walking around like, oh, I'm going to read. And then you get uh, and then you get these people who, you know, some are maybe terrific poets. Some maybe have never written before. And it's like, no, I want you to be a part of this. So with the pandemic, it closed down obviously after uh, after we had our first successful run. So we're looking to bring it back to this year's uh, poetry festival. And one thing I was thinking about was looking at the different great Zoom artists out there internationally, being like, hey, you know, maybe you can bring me, send me your, your poems or art, um, and then we'll actually, like, put it up. I think we're, we're talking maybe about creating, like, Tibetan flags out of it, the prayer flags. Nice, nice. Uh, and then we're going to get a spot in New York to host it. Um, so that's one thing. I'm excited to bring that back. And then the other is uh, um, my former Buffalo poet, Roger Kenny, um, who I used to run Buffalo with, along with a few others. He has created a virtual reality art gallery. Wow. Um, it's all in VR. Um, he launched it very recently. It's called the Road Gallery. 
so me and him are looking to start a new poetry series there. So it'll be all in virtual reality. Um, whole thing. We'll also make sure that folks who don't have, you know, those crazy goggles and whatnot, because I don't have those either, um, can just sit at their desktop. And so folks will hear more about that from me, asking people to come and participate. And I think it should be cool and different. So uh, I'm very excited for those two things. So is there an email or a web address we should go to for more information? Um, not yet. I'll be announcing it on my Facebook. And then uh, uh, I'm still looking to, uh, I mean, uh, some of that stuff is a little... Not nebulous. Future. Not correct, future. But it's, it's still future. Well, yeah. it's coming up soon, but it's happening. So you'll see stuff. Uh, for the Sun Poem, we have an Instagram, which is, uh, I think, the it's just the, the Sun Poem. Okay. So you'll find it there, um, which is you'll see the art from two years ago, and then I'll be posting links sometime soon. Well, thank you again, my brother. It's been a very much an honor to join you. Absolutely. It was an honor to be part of this, man, and thank you for uh, letting me blab on. Uh, and honor. You take care. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. It's been wonderful having you with us. We'll see you again next week. Thanks again, and tune in again for more Poets of the East, where we bring you the finest poets from across the globe. Thanks again, Rick Spizak, and on behalf of myself and my good friend, Visha Danduta, want to wish you a wonderful week ahead. Remember, you can listen anytime. Please share the link with your friends so that all the good poets can hear these amazing voices. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.